Well, if you've been in my office at all, you've seen I have several signed, autographed baseballs, pictures I've collected through the years, uh, some given to me, some uh, I purchased myself, most of them given as gifts, and they're great conversation starters. You know, sometimes uh, when you go to the, when people come to see me, it's stressful. There's a stressful reason for it. You know, a lot of times uh, they're wanting counseling or something like that, and I have found that having things like that on display, people ask about them, starts conversation, kind of loosens the atmosphere a little bit. Uh, plus, I love baseball, and I, it's a hobby of mine, and, and uh, so I've got uh, so, so, so many of those on display, and most of them uh, are Braves baseballs. I'm a big Braves fan. Uh, there are a few Cardinals. Um, that's because my wife's family, huge Cardinals fan. Uh, and there's a story behind that. Ask me sometime later and I'll tell you how I got most of those. Uh, but again, most of them are Braves and they each represent, they're each autographed by a player. They represent that player. Uh, this one is one of those and I chose it. It is uh, former Braves pitcher Phil Necro. And the reason I chose him is because his is the only baseball. He is a Hall of Fame pitcher. While I have other Hall of Fame players, I got their, their signed baseballs and pictures before they were in the Hall of Fame. His is the only one that says Hall of Fame 1997, I believe, is when he was inducted. So it is not only his signature, but it is a little bit of a testimony of who he was as a player, right? It tells you a little bit about him. I have one baseball in my collection that's unique from the rest of them. Um, it's one that I've kept through the years. I don't even know how I kept up with it, but I, I kept it. I think when my parents were cleaning out uh, their old house, they found it and gave it to me because they knew I would want it. It is a baseball from 1987, and it is a game ball from the first game of the season that year. And evidently, I remember this very clearly, but I got the game ball because I hit a home run and got a double play from the outfield in that game. And here's how I remember that. Not only do I do remember it, but it's written on the ball <laughs> to tell me what I did in that game to get the game ball. So among all these other well-known baseball players, I put mine right up there next to them, right? Uh, it's a little league, but hey, you know, it's, it's something to remember. This ball is unique from the rest of the balls that I have because it tells a story about me. Uh, it's unique because all the other ones are, are about what other people did, but this is about what I did, and, and that's kind of neat to have. You know, Christianity is unique from every other religion in the world for one reason and one reason only. Christianity is unique because it is about a person, and that person is Jesus Christ, and Within the story of Christianity is the testimony of who he is and what he did. Not only, hey, this is in the past. I'll never be a baseball player again. But Jesus continues to write his story. Christianity is not just about what he did. It's about what he's doing and what he's going to do in the future. You know, the, the question for the ages, the question that's been debated among people of all different race, creed, colors, is who is Jesus? That question has been asked over and over again. Who is he? Is he really who he said he was? Leo Tolstoy wrote, I believe Christ was a man like ourselves. To look upon him as God would be the greatest of sacrilege. 
On the other hand, Napoleon, of all people, said, I know men, and I tell you that Jesus Christ was no mere man. Between him and whoever else in the world, there is no possible term of comparison. Jesus Christ, he is the point of separation between Christianity and every other major religion in the world. Every other major religion is about what I have to do to be acceptable to God. It's about works, not grace. And that's the point of separation. That's the distinction between Christianity and other religions. Christianity is not a a religion. All the other major religions, Hinduism, Buddhism, Mormonism, they are all about what I have to do to get to God, to be good enough, works, living a good life. It's all about me trying to get to God, but Christianity is not that. Again, it's not a religion. Christianity, the difference between Christianity and every other faith in the world is that all other religions are about man reaching up to God while Christianity is about God reaching down to man. And there's the difference. It's about man. It's about grace. It's not about religion. What do I do to be good enough? It's about relationship. God initiating a relationship with us through his son, Jesus Christ. It's about the person of Jesus Christ as Lord, as God who became man. And Isaiah tells us among the other names given that his name is mighty God. We're in this series leading up to Christmas about the names of Jesus, where we're looking in the book of Isaiah chapter nine, verses six and seven. And we see In Isaiah's prophecy about the Messiah, the names given to the Messiah, who we, of course, know as Jesus Christ. Let's read those two verses again in in chapter 9 of Isaiah, verses 6 and 7. For a child will be born for us, a son will be given to us, and the government will be on his shoulders. He will be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, and Prince of Peace. The dominion will be vast and its prosperity will never end. He will reign on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and sustain it with justice and righteousness from now and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. We move on this week to the name Mighty God. We talked about him as wonderful counselor last week and what that means to us. Now we look at him as Mighty God and the implications of that. And there are four conclusions that we can draw from that name, the significance of Jesus being called mighty God. The first conclusion is this, the person of God is in Christ. He's not just a man, he's God. The person of God is in Christ. How do we know? Well, scripture tells us that Jesus Christ is Lord for one thing. God says in Isaiah 43 verses 10 through 11, but you are my witnesses, O Israel, says the Lord. You are my servant. You have been chosen to know me, believe in me, and understand that I alone am God. There is no other God. There never has been, and there never will be. Yes, I am the Lord, and there is no other Savior. God says there's only one, and that's been clear from the beginning of Scripture. And he identifies himself as God. To Moses, he identified himself as I am. He is the one and only But then we read in John chapter 8, verse 58, Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. Where have we heard that before? To every Jew listening, they would know he's saying he's God. 
So we read in Isaiah, we see throughout the Old Testament, God says, I am the one and only. In our Ten Commandments series, number one is about just that. He is the one and only. And so if Jesus is saying he's God, he's either lying, he's a blasphemer, or he and God are the same. They are one. The person of God is in Christ. The Bible declares in John 1.1 1, 1 and, and verse 14, In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and what? The Word was God. And then you fast forward to verse 14, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory as of the one and only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus, God, became flesh. And he dwelt among us. Furthermore, the author of Hebrews says this about Jesus in Hebrews 1.8. But the son of the son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And the righteous scepter is the scepter of his kingdom. C.H. Spurgeon said, if Jesus, he, if he were not God, then Muhammad was the better prophet and Jesus deserved to die. Because he said he was God. You know, he, he's either God or a liar. There's no in-between. He himself claimed. If he's not God, he's guilty of idolatry and he's guilty of blasphemy. Two sins, blasphemy is a sin punishable by death. So he either is or he isn't. But if we believe scripture, then he is God. The person of God is in Christ. Scripture declares it and salvation demands that Christ be Lord. We need a savior. Why? Well, there are two perspectives to look at here. One is theological, one is just practical. Theologically, we need Jesus to be Lord because of the problem of original sin. We are all sinners. Romans 3.23 tells us that we are all sinners. Romans 5.12, sin came into the world through one person and death came through sin. So death spread to everyone because everyone sinned. Adam and Eve sinned, and we are all, as a result, born with a sin nature. We have a sin problem that we can't take care of. We're born with it. We're all sinful. And then Paul, as a result, states in 1 Corinthians 15, 22, For as in Adam all die, we die because of our sin. But just as all die in Adam because Christ, as Savior and Lord, becoming man, living a sin-free life, so also in Christ, all will be made alive. Just as we are born into sin because of what Adam and Eve did, we, through Christ, can have salvation and be made alive again. The problem of original sin means we need a Savior. We need somebody who can take care of that problem of sin. But that's not all. That's theological. Practically speaking, if we need to be sin-free to be saved, then we have a problem because no man, no mere man, can live without sin. We've all sinned, right? Again, Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There's not a person in this room who hasn't committed a sin, not a person in this world or ever has been that hasn't committed a sin except for one, and that's Jesus Christ. God became man because none of us could do that. None of us could live without sin. Thankfully, though, we are assured in Hebrews 4.15, we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who's been tempted in every way. He's lived life. He's experienced everything that we could experience, pain, suffering, temptation, just as we are, yet he did it without sinning. He was without sin. 
Jesus lived without sinning, and no mere man can do that. Uh, long time, uh, long ago preacher D.M. Stearns, preaching in Philadelphia, is a story about how he was preaching, and after the service, somebody in the congregation came to him and said, listen, I, it bothers me that you preach about the death, the crucifixion, and death, and emphasize that of Jesus Christ. Shouldn't you you highlight him as a good teacher and a great example in order to encourage people. And Stearns, he said, well, listen, let's, let me ask you, if, if, I, if that's what I did, if I just presented him as a good teacher, a good example, would you follow him? And the guy said, well, of course I would. Who doesn't want to follow a good example? And the guy said, oh, the, Stearns said, okay, let's start with this. Jesus never sinned. The Bible says that, right? The guy said, yeah, of course. He said, well, can you model that? Can you, can you duplicate that? The guy said, of course not. I've sinned. I believe we've all sinned. And so Stearns looked at him and he said, well, then your greatest need is not an example. Your greatest need is a savior. And that's all of us. We don't need a good, we got plenty of good examples, right? Some bad, but a lot of good. We don't need a good example. We need a savior who can free us from sin. And the only person who could do that is God becoming man and living a sin-free life and taking on the burden of sin for us. Practically speaking, we need a Savior because we can't save ourselves. None of us can. None of us can be good enough. Remember, Christianity is about God reaching down to man because we could not reach him. Writer and illustrator Jeff Jock said this. He said, there are two ways to pass a hurdle, leaping over it or plowing through. He said, there needs to be a monster truck option. You know, sometimes in life, you just want a monster truck option, right? You got a problem, you don't know how to deal with it, you just want to just annihilate it. Well, sin was a hurdle that we could not jump nor pass through. Jesus gives us the monster truck option to sin. He completely annihilated it. He overcame sin completely. He lived a perfect sinless life and died and in doing so took on all of your sin and my sin paying the penalty that we could not pay and because of him now we have victory over sin and death he's given us the monster truck option we now have defeated sin and death because he's defeated it for us we have victory in Jesus Christ he gives us victory so we see Christ's deity declared in Scripture. We know He's God because Scripture says He's God. He gives us the power to overcome sin. We need a Savior who can overcome the obstacle of sin. He's done that for us. We see that from a theological standpoint, from a practical standpoint. We need a Savior, not just a good example. Now let's take a look at the second conclusion of the name Mighty God, which is about the presence of God. The presence of God is in Christ. The person of God, he is God in his person, but also the presence of God we see in Christ. And it's evidence, this also is evidence of his deity, that he is God. To begin with, Jesus himself reveals God to us. In John chapter 4, verses 8 through 10, John, he's, he's recording Jesus' interaction with the Samaritan woman at Jacob's well. And this is what he says. He, he was alone at the time because his disciples had gone into the village to buy some food. The woman was surprised for Jews refused to have anything to do with Samaritans. She said to Jesus, you are a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. Why are you asking me for something to drink? Jesus replied, 
If, only, if you only knew the gift God has for you and who you are speaking to, you would ask me and I would give you living water. What's happening here? He's revealing himself as God to her. Jesus is the revelation of God because he is God. And he's, he was for her, he's the same for us. He reveals God to us. He also makes it possible for us to be reunited with God. It would be one thing if he revealed himself as God. That would be amazing, and he did that. But it would be troubling, to say the least, if he did that without offering a way to be reconciled with God. Because remember, we, we've tried. We can't be, none of us can live a sinless life, so we cannot get back to God. There's no way. can't happen. But Jesus, thankfully, provides a way. He bridges the gap between us and God. Look at 2 Corinthians 5, 19. Namely, that God was in Christ doing what? Reconciling the world to himself. He, his is a ministry of reconciliation, a ministry that, by the way, we now have been given to reconcile the world to God through Jesus Christ. We are ambassadors for Christ to share the gospel. But Jesus reconciles the world to him. He is a continuous and comforting presence. A news story from a few, few years ago, a lady by the name of Pat Hansen was at church one Sunday and she had lost some weight in the weeks prior. She had suffered a fall and, and through, the, through getting over that, she had lost some weight and she was in church one Sunday and realized that a family heirloom, a ring that her mother had owned, uh, that she wore all the time, noticed that it was really loose because she had lost all the weight. Well, um, after church, she, as many of you will do when church is over, went to the restroom. Been sitting for a long time. She went to the restroom and accidentally flushed her mom's ring down the toilet. Family heirloom was purchased in 1920. Her mother wore it until she passed away in 1989. Pat had been wearing it ever since. And of course, I mean, she said she wanted to dive right in after it. She was panicked because she had lost this ring. Well, Sunday, there's not much you can do. The next day, she called the, the city sewer uh, company and asked them if there was anything they could do. They came out with some equipment and a closed circuit TV system where they could, could look into the lines and see, and they looked and looked, couldn't find it. And they told her there wasn't really any hope. And they, they apologized, but there was nothing else they could do. Well, the next day they came back. They didn't tell her because they didn't want to get her hopes up. They came back the next day. They stopped up the main sewer drain so that they could examine it with a camera while it was dry. They stuck a camera, listen, they stuck a camera through this line, this sewer line, and every dip in the line that collected stuff, they sucked that out with a vacuum and basically sifted through it like they were panning for gold. Every line, every part. Now, now talk about going above and beyond. This, these, these sewer employees searched and searched and searched, and lo and behold, they found Pat's ring. They called her up. Gave her the surprise, she went, she got it repaired, resized. But I think we can all agree that those guys did more than they had to do. I mean, they went above and beyond. Who would expect anybody to sift through all that mess for one ring? But they did it. They worked extra hard. Well, when we think about what Jesus did for us, I can't help but think about the parable of the lost coin. Where the point of that parable is you search and search and search for that one lost coin. You know, the point of it is that Jesus was willing to do whatever it took to save even one lost sinner. He was willing to die 
for even one lost sinner. Went above and beyond, and hey, listen, he sifted through the sewer of humanity, sin and death, and took it all on himself. Talk about going above and beyond. I mean, who of us could ever even pretend to deserve what Jesus did for us? He took it all on himself. He reveals God to us. He is God. He was willing to do whatever it took to reunite us. And he did whatever it took to reunite us with God the Father. He died the death that we deserve. The presence of God is, is, is evidence of the deity of Christ, that he is God. It brings with it also the power of God, which leads us to our third conclusion. The name Mighty God represents the fact that the power of God is in Christ. If he's God, then he has God's power. We see this first in creation. Jesus is explained in John 1 that it's explained to us that Jesus, he's the agent of creation. John chapter 1 verse 3, God created everything through him. In the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God. Well, then in verse 3, we are told that he is the agent of creation. Everything was created through him and nothing was created except through him. So when you look at creation, creation declares the glory of God, specifically Jesus Christ the second person of the Trinity. He is the agent of creation. Another display of God's power in Christ is seen in redemption. God paid for our sins with Jesus' life. God redeemed you and me. Think about this. He redeemed you and me, and he used his son as payment. What does it mean to redeem? It means to buy something back, to pay a price, to buy something back among other meanings, but primarily that's what it means. So he made us, we were his, we sinned, we were separated, but God bought us back. We are twice his. He bought us and he paid with our lives with his son, paid for our lives with his son. Look at Romans 3, verses 24 through 26. Yet God, with undeserving kindness, declares that we are righteous. How did he do that? He didn't just ignore our sin. No, he did this through Jesus Christ when he freed us from the penalty of our sins because Jesus took that penalty for us. For God presented Jesus as a sacrifice for sin. People are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life, shedding his blood. This sacrifice shows that God was being fair when he held back and did not punish those who sinned in times past. For he was looking ahead and including them in what he would do in the present time. God did this to demonstrate his righteousness, for he himself is fair and just. And he declares sinners to be right in his sight when they believe in Jesus. You've heard this analogy before. It's like the judge who passes a sentence on the guy who committed a crime. Part of that sentence is a fine. Or the, the result, the punishment is a fine. The guy doesn't have the money. He can't pay the fine. So the judge takes out the money and pays for it himself what happens when he does that well justice has been served the man's penalty has been paid he can now be set free the law has been met right it's just that the judge paid it for him the penalty's still been paid well that is exactly what God did for us we deserve death hell for eternity, separated from God. But God said, being a just God, he couldn't just ignore our sin. He couldn't just pretend it didn't happen because then he would no longer be holy and righteous and just. But he said, I'll pay that penalty for you. 
And he sent his son Jesus. Jesus living that sinless life. That's why it's so important. Being sin free and being God. He was the judge. But also he became the punishment. Took on the punishment for our sin. He took on all of our sin. At that moment on the cross. When God the Father turned his back on Jesus. And Jesus said why have you forsaken me? That was the moment Jesus took on the wrath of God. And the penalty of our sin, all of the sin of mankind rested on him. All of those who would be saved by grace, Jesus became our sacrifice. And because of Jesus' sacrifice, the Holy Spirit is now able to sanctify us. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, Paul says, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. You know, Philip Brooks was a minister years ago of Boston Trinity Episcopal Church, and he was the author of Little Town of Bethlehem. Um, that's probably what he's best known for, but those who knew him, uh, being a well-known pastor, larger church, he was always busy, pulled in a million different directions, but he always, the people that knew him said he was always at peace, never seemed to be stressed out. And he always had time for people that needed his help. And one of the guys that he mentored wrote him a letter near the end of his life, wrote him a letter asking, what's the secret of your serenity? What's the secret of your peace? And here's his response. Brooks said, the more I've thought it over, the more sure it has seemed to me that these last years have had a peace and a fullness which there did not used to be. It's a deeper knowledge and a truer love of Jesus Christ. I cannot tell you how personal this grows to me. He is here, he knows me, and I know him. It's the most real thing in the world, and every day makes it more real. And one wonders with delight what it will grow to as the years go on. That's a man who grew, walked, and grew closer to his Savior every day. You see what? happens, and this is where we need a little refresher course of the difference between justification and sanctification. Justification happens at the moment of salvation. When I accept Christ as Lord, I'm immediately forgiven of my sin. I'm justified before God. But that's when the process of sanctification begins. Sanctification is the lifelong process of the Holy Spirit working in and through me to make me like Jesus in my thoughts, my actions, my desires, everything. The longer I live in submission to Christ, the Holy Spirit does His work. The longer I live, the more I become like Jesus and the closer I come to my Savior. The result is I know Him more. He knows me. He knows me anyway, but I know Him more. And I have confidence and security in Jesus, who he is, and in my salvation that he's provided with me. That results in peace, security, serenity, all of those things that people are searching for. Sanctification. There's a world record set in 2015. A guy was preaching, a central Florida preacher by the name of Zach Zender preached a sermon that lasted over two days. He started at 7 o'clock on Friday morning, preaching from Genesis all the way to Revelation. He preached from 7 o'clock on Friday morning all the way to 1221 on Sunday afternoon. The total sermon 
was 53 hours and 18 minutes. So the next time I go long, you guys think about that for a moment, all right? 53 hours. The previous record was 43. He now holds the world's record for the longest sermon in history. I mean, that seems like a never-ending sermon, right? Well, with that in mind, I want you to think about sanctification this way. It's kind of like a never-ending sermon. Jesus works on us, and he's constantly teaching us, making us more like himself. If we will only listen, obey, and follow him. It's like a never-ending sermon. He just continues on and on and on. He's the teacher. We're the disciples. We're the students. We learn through his words, through what he does in our lives, through serving him, as we depend on him daily, as we spend time in his word, walking in communion with him, that ongoing conversation with our Savior throughout the day, we become more and more like him. And the result of that is that we are more like Jesus, but our confidence in him and in our salvation grows. In addition, we're told in scripture that Jesus has the authority of God. You know, he sanctifies us, the Holy Spirit. He has the power to do that. That's a display of the power of God. But he simply has the authority of God as well. Jesus said himself in Matthew 28, 18. Jesus came up and spoke to them saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. We see this authority in Jesus' life and ministry. And we see it and now as he works in and through our lives. In 2 Corinthians 4, 7, Paul says, we now have this light shining in our hearts, but we ourselves are like fragile clay jars containing this great treasure. This makes it clear that our great power, it's not us, our great power is of God, not from ourselves. It is the power of Christ, the Holy Spirit living in us and working through us, the power of God in our lives. He, we see it every day as he works in and through us. It's in Christ. Probably the most common way we experience the power of God, though, is just in his daily provisions. I mean, think about it. We don't always recognize them as such. But as God, as Jesus provides for our needs every day, that's his power in our lives. And we experience that every day, whether, you know, Thanksgiving, we're reminded to be thankful, but we have reason every day to be thankful. Every day that we have breath in our lungs, that we're alive, that we have clothes on our backs, we have food on the table, a roof over our heads, all of those things. Everything belongs to him, so that means he gave us those things. He's providing for our needs every day. And we experience his power through his provision. And that is our, third, our fourth conclusion about the name of mighty God, what it represents. It means that the provision of God is in Christ. He promises to provide for our needs. For one thing, he's secured eternal life for all of his children. He provides eternal life. John three sixteen. for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. He gives us eternal life. And then in John chapter 1 again, verse 12 though, as many as have received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. So he gives us eternal life, but above and beyond that, he showers us with eternal love. We have eternal life, but we also have perfect love. Jesus loves us with perfect love. In 2 Thessalonians 2.16, Paul prays, Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who has loved us and given us eternal comfort and good hope by grace. What has he done? He's loved us with an everlasting love, and he gives us eternal satisfaction, eternal 
assurance, that's what hope means in the scripture here, and comfort. No matter what you think, no matter where you come from, your background, what you've done, what you haven't done, please know that God loves you. He has settled that issue once and for all when he sent his son to die for your sins. Jesus loves you. And he will love you with a perfect love that you cannot experience anywhere from anyone. He loves you with an everlasting love. He's shown it time and time again, and he will show it. If you'll accept him, if you don't know him, if you'll accept him, you will experience his love in new ways every day. Ephesians 2, 4 and 5 tells us God is so rich in mercy, and he loved us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins... He gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. It is only by God's grace that you've been saved. So who is Jesus? How do we determine? Is he really God or not? Is he who he says he is or not? Who is he? Who was this man called Jesus? Is he just a good teacher? Was he a prophet? Is he really God? How do you form? Have you given it any thought? Do you have an opinion on the matter? of who Jesus is. Jeff Mallett said an opinion should be the result of thought, not a substitute for it. Have you thought about this? Have you asked the question? We all know that one day our lives on this earth are going to come to an end. I'm not saying that to be depressing or morbid. That's just life, right? Life one day will end. Every man will die. One day. We all know that's coming. We don't know when. Well, we know that's coming for each of us, right? Wouldn't it be foolish, knowing that day's out there someday, wouldn't it be foolish to spend your whole life never preparing for that event that you know is coming? Well, here's the thing. The Bible says that Jesus is God, the one and only Savior of the world. There is no other way to God, to heaven, except through him. He said that. The Bible declares that time and time again in different ways. If you've never answered the question, of who is Jesus, and you're not prepared. You're, that day's coming, and you're not prepared. We all need to think about who he is and investigate. I can't do it for you. You need to answer the question of who he is. We need to decide, is he who he said he is? There's a woman named Kara. She's thought about this, and she's come to a conclusion, and I want her to share her story with you this morning, just a short video. This is an important issue and one I had to wrestle with myself. I mean, if Jesus is just a historical figure, a great moral teacher, then what he said doesn't need to have any bearing on my life. But if he is God, then I need to sit up and take notice. So the question of whether he's a great historical teacher or much more than that is really pretty crucial. Seems to me only fair to Jesus to listen to what he said about who he was. Let me tell you about one event in his life that you can read about in the gospel, the biography of Jesus written by John. Jesus called himself, I am, and the people listening picked up rocks and tried to stone him. Why? Because I am is the Old Testament name for God, and the people listening understood that Jesus was indeed calling himself God. So you see, that's what Jesus had to say about himself. Not that he was a great teacher, but much, much more than that. Now, of course, anyone can say that they're God. The amazing thing about Jesus is that he backed up what he said with what he did. It's hard to examine Jesus' life and think he's just a great historical figure. 
His miracles are astounding. He's healed people. He's brought them back from the dead. He's changed water to wine. He's even walked on water. My point is this. A great man, a great moral teacher, wouldn't have made the claims that Jesus made and wouldn't have had the power to do the things that Jesus did. Jesus' claims to be God don't allow us the option of thinking he's just a good teacher. I mean, if you think about it, because he claimed he was God, Jesus was either a madman, someone who thought he was God but was really crazy, a liar, someone who was deliberately deceiving the people, or he was who he said he was. He was God. So in other words, Jesus was either mad, bad, or God. And I'd say his resurrection, his rising from the dead, literally conquering death, is resounding proof of his claim to be God. And as I've said, this is an issue that I've, I've really thought about myself. And when, once I read the Gospels, I just was utterly convinced that Jesus was who he said he was. And if he is God, then it's important for us to think through what that means for us and for our lives. Jesus has been acclaimed as the greatest religious leader who's ever lived. He's been called the most influential person to have ever lived, the greatest teacher to have ever lived, being unique to the degree that no one else could be compared to him. But only considering Jesus in regards to an exemplary life, that doesn't answer all of the stumbling blocks placed in Christianity by an unbelieving world. In order to remove those, you have to look at who Jesus is based on who he said he is and what he did in life, just like Kara just reminded us. So our conclusion has to be this. There is no Christianity without Christ. It all centers on him. I mean, all of it centers on who Jesus said he was and what he did with his life. The predominant theme of the scriptures from beginning to end, one continuous story, the predominant theme is the person and work of Jesus Christ from Genesis to Revelation. He was God. He is God. He became man. He died on the cross after living a perfect sinless life, died on the cross, was buried, and then was raised from the dead three days later. He is the one and only all-sufficient Savior of the world. And one day, He's going to come back again. And He's going to take all of us who are His to be with Him for all of eternity. He is the Savior of the world. He's either the Savior, complete and total, all-inclusive Savior, or He's not the Savior at all. There is no in-between. Jesus Christ is Emmanuel, God with us, Scripture declares. So here's the question I'm leaving you with today. Who is he to you? Is he a great teacher? Well, we've just given you plenty of reasons why you shouldn't just think he's a great teacher. Was he a prophet? Well, he couldn't be a prophet because he said he was God. Or is he your Lord and Savior, who he said he was and who he's declared to be in Scripture and who... I've experienced him to be personally. Who is Jesus to you? Let's pray together. Father, thank you for giving us your son, Jesus. Jesus, thank you for coming to this earth, living 
amongst us, living a sinless life, dying the perfect sacrificial death on the cross, and in doing so, taking on our sin so that we would not have to suffer the penalty that was due us. Lord, I pray that all of us right now in this moment would answer that question. Who is Jesus to us? And if there's anyone here today who doesn't know you as Lord and Savior, Lord, I pray that this moment, as we pray, that they would just cry out to you, asking you to come into their lives to forgive them of their sin, believing that you died on the cross and were raised from the dead. They don't have to know all the answers and and all the ins and outs. They just have to know that you are the only way to heaven, that you died for them and that you can save them. And right now, I pray that if there's someone in this room that doesn't know you, that they would ask you into their lives in this moment. And then during this time of decision, allow me to share with them what they need to do next. Lord, there may be other decisions we need to make. I mean, if we believe that you are Lord, that means you are Lord of all. You are Lord of our lives. And we have to submit to you. And there may be some areas we need to submit Some areas that we're still trying to control ourselves. There may be other decisions of commitment, church membership, baptism, whatever. Commitment to the role that you've given us within our families, within our sphere of influence. To live for you and to to share your love with others through word and deed. Or whatever it is that you want us to do. I pray that during this time of commitment, we would hear your voice clearly and we would respond obediently. We thank you for your grace. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Would you stand for our time of commitment?